Armand R. Towns is Associate Professor of Communication and Media Studies at Carleton University. His research and teaching focuses on the relationship between media, communication, race, blackness, and history. He's just released an amazing book called On Black Media Philosophy with University of California Press. And he's also the co-founder and editor of the brand new journal, Communication and Race, which will start publishing issues in 2024. In this conversation, we cover a fair bit of territory, so to speak. We dwell with the sprawling, exciting claims of his new book. And one of the central theoretical problems in that book is the question of what is left unsaid in the influential work of Marshall McLuhan, a figure who still has a lingering impact within media studies, especially here in Canada. Towns talks about how encountering McLuhan's thinking was eye-opening, and most of all because he was exposed first to media studies in the United States, where the primary focus tends to be on representation itself, the content of the text rather than the medium. McLuhan's work offered Towns a really interesting corrective to that, but when he started digging into McLuhan's writing, he found some notable gaps, especially around race. So what was left unsaid in McLuhan became in some ways more important than what was said, which often gets reduced to phrases that we're all familiar with, like the medium is the message or the global village and so on. McLuhan has an impact on Towns' thinking, but Towns is really trying to act back on McLuhan's impact by asking why McLuhan is invested in notions of the tribal and detribal. Why is he citing who he is citing? Why is he writing letters to people like J.C. Carruthers? So his book, through what he calls a practice of reading that is deeply historical, aims to complicate the legacy of people like McLuhan and others too, like Charles Darwin, for which there is already an established history that may obscure more than it reveals. How do we break that logic, as Towns puts it? A logic that frames Africa as a purely natural place from which objects are extracted, for example. And what are the implications of aiming to break that logic for politics? I was really struck in reading his work and talking to him by the way he approaches this through the radical concept of climate reparations and the destruction of the natural environment. How, as he says, it goes hand in hand with the destruction of particular people. He pushes us in framing these ideas to approach reparations as more than just a financial question. Reparations means taking seriously how land, water, and space have been partitioned, poisoned, and commodified and realizing that the question, where are people going to go, is going to be central in a future where we see innumerable climate refugees fleeing the sacrifice zones. As I say, we do cover a lot of ground. We touch on the problem of racism within the contemporary digital media economy. One of the really insightful ways that Towns engages with what Ruha Benjamin calls the carceral technologies of the present is through digital renderings of Michael Brown's murder. We also discuss how contemporary surveillance technologies are marketed as a means of getting around entrenched human biases, but nonetheless tend to reveal precisely these same kinds of biases when they're applied in the world. There's so much timely importance in what Towns is writing about. He talks about how streets themselves are media and in ways that hold racial implications, about the white control of space and how the layouts of streets aren't random. There are policies historically that deliberately seek to cut up neighborhoods and cities 
in ways that, quote, keep intact white neighborhoods at the expense of black neighborhoods. So much of what he's writing about really comes from this emphasis on historical situatedness. He makes it clear that, as a black scholar, bringing in that historical context changes the theory for him. Maybe my biggest takeaway here was this idea that there has been a systematic neutralizing of radical thought within institutional settings. He explains how there's been a neoliberal shift since the 1970s toward inclusion in the project of higher education and at the state level with elected officials. As a black middle class emerged, he says we saw radical demands replaced by a more liberal institutional politics that enshrined mastery and the logic of the expert. This made things that were once radical profitable, as he puts it. The challenge then, I suppose, becomes figuring out a way to maintain real traction, a means of preserving revolutionary thought without succumbing to what Olufemi Taiwo has called elite capture. I've been uh, really diving into your your complex writing. I find it uh, incredibly rewarding stuff to read, uh, but not easy, you know? Like the, the sort of theory you do is um, not just stimulating, but uh, like I like to use the term kind of restless and difficult to, to kind of wrestle with. Right. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask, first of all, just about your kind of approach to writing because it is so rigorous. It almost on some level reminded me a little of the late Eve Sedgwick's writing, just like how mm. dense it can be and how rigorous it is. Um, but, you know, Sedgwick also, you could kind of sense, took a certain level of pleasure in writing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like I just recently published an interview with Venus Evans Winters and Jennifer Esposito on, in part, finding joy in writing while also like ensuring that your basic needs as a writer are met and that you're not sort of overwhelmed, you know, you're dealing with such incredibly difficult subject matter a lot of the time. Yeah. Do you still at the same time find sources of joy when you sit down to write or what's your relationship to writing as a practice? Yeah, I, I, um, I appreciate that. You know, I think, you know, being compared to Sedgwick is, is really, uh, a great honor. Um, I guess one of the things that I kind of see, um, as central to my own writing is a practice of reading, right? Um, I really try to um, read into a lot of historical context, and then I try to write my way around those contexts. Um, so I'm really interested in, in particular, looking at, for example, like the, the Cold War and the development of um, academic practices around that Cold War. Um, and my own field of media and communication studies um, has has long been argued to uh, be very closely connected to the Cold War context. Um, and one of the things that I'm really also interested in is how my field, although it accepts that Cold War context, largely does not look at the third world as part of that Cold War. Um, so what does that mean, right, when we when we start to think about a question of media and communication, um, when we see that the Cold War is viewed as this kind of central foundation point for the field, but we ignore that the Cold War was disproportionately fought on the, on the backyards of black and brown people around the world. Mm -hmm. um, 
so so that really kind of organizes my thought is is a kind of historical reading into the context that I want to start writing from. And I mean, I see all kinds of ways in which you're doing that in your writing, of course, like, um, you know, you you talk in your book, uh, this incredible book that just came out from University of California Press on black media philosophy about the the way in which the U.S. was more alarmed by black decolonization struggles than by the rise of fascism, mm-hmm. uh, quote, as it was invested in Western colonialism for its own financial bottom line. Um, you know, so like you're you're thinking through this this, um, you know, sort of uh, an under attended to question of the third world, a term itself that isn't often historicized like it's now um, reduced to a stigmatized position and emptied of its content. The third world being an like something that opposed the sort of capitalist Western bloc. That that history is kind of more or less erased. Right. Um, but in terms of your method, you're looking for you know I I I gravitate to this too. Like certain his, historical conjunctures in trying to sort of track track the history of ideas in a way, like identifying the fact that you know uh, Marshall McLuhan's Playboy interview is published at the same uh, moment as other crucial essays by critical race theorists that don't get acknowledged. Yeah. You're, you're talking, I guess, specifically about that, that sort of um, that coming out of a practice of reading. Mm-hmm. And I guess like I wanted to jump off of that and ask like uh, how you position yourself in some ways as a scholar, like um, you know, it's, it's something that you've talked about in other podcasts uh, in particular, the Black Matter podcast, you talk mm-hmm. about, you know, not necessarily knowing if you're sort of like a radical theorist, mm-hmm. but knowing that you want to like repossess and repurpose the resources of the university. Yeah. Um, you know, this is something that I see you thinking about in relationship to uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and how he thinks about his like place as a scholar and his existence as a black person. Like, you know, there's this moment in on black media philosophy where you say that Um, you know, uh, Du Bois sort of reflects on the fact that this sort of violence can happen to any black person at a moment's notice. And there's like a similar moment in Rao Peck's I'm Not Your Negro, where Mm -hmm. you see James Baldwin say this, right, in a talk show. Um, A white scholar sort of is trying to seek identification with um, Baldwin through their shared scholar status, right? right? And Baldwin just says like, what you don't understand is my particular vulnerability um, and how that, you know, that is a disruption of any sort of identification that we could have. Yeah. Um, is that, is that something that you feel, especially like in the academy, something that you wrestle with, you know, this, this specific vulnerability to violence and how that kind of like, as I say, kind of like disrupts this notion that scholars are somehow on a level playing field. Yeah. You know, I think, um, you know, the, the people you've mentioned, I think all kind of, um, illustrate this uh the point that you're you're pointing to right is that you know one i think you know people like baldwin and du bois uh were very cognizant of the moment that they were in right um mm-hmm. du bois uh frequently said stuff like you know um i can't critique somebody who knew the lash and basically what he meant was like, I can't really come critique somebody that was a slave because I was not a slave, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can't get into their mind and then say, well, they should have done X, Y, and Z, 
right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we are living in a context that is not completely separate from the legacy of slavery, the legacy of um, different forms and iterations of racial violence. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really uh, concerned um, with people like Du Bois in um, the, you know, one in um, Du Bois has this uh, essay called Sociology Hesitant. Um, and one of the things that he says is that um, there's a need for historical situatedness um, in all of our thought, right? Um, and he's kind of um, making this critique in this kind of early 20th century critique of um, the discipline of sociology um, and its influence from positivism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that there's this kind of universal truth out there that is somehow distinct from the historical context that that truth is developed in, that becomes really central to my own thinking, mm-hmm. especially as a communication studies scholar, because I really want to be... I really want to understand what the kind of main and central theories are of my field, but also how those theories emerge, mm-hmm. right? And I think that, you know, as as a Black scholar, right, um, bringing in that historical context changes the theory, right? Um, this is, to me, what Du Bois has always shown. As soon as we bring in, you know, the historical context of sociology, right? What it emerges from. And then we say, well, what does the Negro have to do with this? Then sociology falls apart, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So so I'm really interested in, 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 I would say, you know, I think this was kind of one of the questions you were getting at is, you know, my method is, is really kind of highly influenced by that kind of Du Boisian um, logic of both, you know, taking taking into consideration the, the, the importance of theory, but also the taking into consideration the importance of the historical situatedness that that theory emerges from, and then trying to build something, trying to build a better world out of both of those realizations. Yeah. And I mean, like there are obviously almost like you know, risks and, and sort of hazards built into that kind of practice. Like the, the seamlessness of theory, the kind of, um, the kind of, you know, polished nature of theories that form a citational chain Mm -hmm. can get muddied and and messed up. Uh, but that sort of process of, uh, you know, making the citational chain just a less mechanistic perfunctory process of like learning to cite the right people is extraordinarily generative, I think. Right. Um, and, and just subverting it in a lot of ways by focusing on, in a way, like the um, the things that, as you say, in relationship to you know Charles Darwin, mm-hmm. uh, the things that haunt the text, um, I find that so e- evocative. But and maybe you know we'll come back to that in a second because I think like there's so much there in terms of how consequential a certain historical amnesia is in general. Right. I mean, like if you look at the United States context, Rebecca Wanzo just said this recently on on the podcast that you know the this you know raft of book banning that's happening is really an attack on history itself. Like it's an attempt to um, undo difficult pasts uh, that are more easily dealt with if suppressed. Um, but like what what you were saying uh, in terms of the kind of consequences 
of of or or like the the kind of a, you know what it creates to historic you know situate yourself historically mm-hmm. um, got me thinking about this essay that you have in uh, the book Plantation Politics and Campus Rebellions. Um, power diversity and the emancipatory struggle in higher education, yeah. uh, you know, which is about this now fashionable discourse of, you know, equity, diversity, inclusion, accessibility. Um, but really in particular, the um, ersatz inclusion of people of color within institutions of higher learning. Like you, the, the, the main claim of that article is that, you know, uh, the, the, you know, writing of wrongs, is itself a, a, a kind of historical amnesia. Because as you say in that article, quote, if racial violence against people of color is essential to U.S. institutions, which you're saying it, it certainly is historically, people of color uh, have never been excluded from higher education. Instead, history fails to acknowledge our violent inclusion. Right. That's like the key kind of turn of the essay. Um, and, and you say like that there's a you don't call it amnesia, you call it confusion. There's confusion within the university about precisely that, you know, like who historically has the power and who currently has the power financially and institutionally. Right. Um, and I guess I wondered if, you know, if you could connect the ideas in that article specifically to this like language of like mastery. This is one of the things that you also argue in the article beyond saying like there is a, a way in which like it is not uh, a writing of the wrong of exclusion. It's the writing of the wrong of a violent inclusion. But the other thing you're saying is that, um, you know, institutions can argue it, they are the measure of what is necessary for societal success. Um, where do you see that manifesting itself and how can a black studies perspective kind of out the lie of that investment in mastery? Yeah. You know, um, the, the thing that kind of sticks out to me in, in that question is, uh, um, a really um, good book by Glenn Cothard um, called Red Skin, White Mask. And one of the things that he argues in that book is that, you know, in Canada in particular, um, the logic of um, Indigenous people um, being recognized by the state is organized by the sovereignty of the colonial state itself. Mm-hmm in order to be viewed as a quote unquote authentic indigenous population, you have to get um, approval from the people that are colonizing you. Right. Um, And I think, you know, the university is a part of that state logic. And what you see in that is that the definers, right. Of societal, Logics, the definers of societal um, policy and 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 titles, um, are coming out of a very particular understanding of knowledge, um, of which the uni- the Western University um, is very much a part of. Um, we can also think about you know this context as being inseparable from the development of Western liberalism as well, um, all around the same time that people like Kant are writing. With that in mind, you have to think about, you know, what is coming out of this kind of, you know, mid 20th century university and its development. Um, Well, part of that is one, the response to black studies, right? Um, And not just black studies, but feminism, um, LGBTQ studies, 
um, Chicano, Chicana studies, um, indigenous studies, all of these studies start to develop in the mid 20th century. And one of the things that happens at the university level is there becomes a kind of backlash to those studies, right? Um, especially mm -hmm. black studies, right? It becomes too radical. Um, and then you start to see, and you know, people like Sylvia Winter and um, uh, R.A. Judy have made this argument. Then you start to see um, the development of African-American studies um, as a kind of response to, um, excuse me, black studies being viewed as too radical, right? Mm -hmm. um, so at that point, then you start to see that um, instead of um, addressing the radical demands of black studies or the radical demands of the black power and decolonial movement, um, you have this kind of neoliberal shift of the mid 20th century, 70s, 80s, 90s, that says, well, we won't grant you your kind of particular socialist understanding or um, demands, but we will include you into um, the project of higher education or the project of the state, the project mm -hmm. of um, elected officials, right? You start to see the rise of, uh, or an increasing rise of a black middle class um, around this time as well. So the radical demands of, let's say, the mid 20th century become replaced by a more liberal, inclusive demands of the 1980s, 1990s, right? Um, people like Roger Ferguson, Jody Milamit have argued this as well. Um, and then that becomes, you know, the framework of, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or whatever, you know, different universities have different kind of uh, phrasings of it, right? Um, mm -hmm. so, so that then becomes the logic of the university. It's, it's really, you know, in, in my view, it's a response to these more radical movements um, of the mid 20th century um, and a response that says, well, we won't give you black people in general a transformative uh, relationship to society, but we will give a few individual black people a lot of money. So then, you know, kind of going back to the discussion of mastery, right? Um, then you become um, viewed as an intellect or a kind of expert, expert, right? Based on a kind of late 20th century um, anti-racist uh, logic, right? Where the anti-racist is now profitable, right? The anti-racist is now um not separate from the state, but actually consistent with the logic of the state. Um, so, so now the things that used to be viewed as, you know, too radical can now make you a lot of money. And I talk about this in my book, right? Like Karl Marx is a, is one of the best sellers, right? On Amazon yeah. right now, right? Um, something has changed, you know, in the early 20th century, if you want to get a, edition of Marx, you had to wait for Russia to translate it into your language, right? Um, now, you know, it's sold by Penguin, right? Like, so, so something's changed. And I think, you know, the kind of contemporary anti-racism is also a part of that transformation of academia.
Absolutely. Um, there's a ton there. I mean, the last thing you just said reminded me that uh, talking about marks being sold on Amazon, uh, it reminds me that in 2012, a German bank issued a Karl Marx MasterCard, right? Yeah, so you can, right. you know, there's a way in which it's, it's sort of, um, you know, we've reached a stage where certainly resistance, any form of even like revolutionary thought, it is bought and sold. It's sort of hard to get around the fact that Verso Books is, you know, uh, is pretty excited, for example, that a book like Gunpower is having its moment, not just as a, a go-to text for understanding the the spree shootings in the United States, but also, um, you know, as as a windfall for Verso, right? Which is, I think, a Penguin imprint. Right. Um, so, like, you know, it's it, it it's it's messy to point out these sort of contradictions, but not pointing them out, not thinking through them, you know, allows the inoculation of dissent uh, to continue in a way. And I like that, you know, you're talking about how, you know, the university incorporating diversity as this, you know, as a PR move in some ways goes deeper than just tokenism. It is more like the sort of like absorption of anything potentially dangerous. And this is really what your article, like the central case study in your article is about, like talking about, um, uh, UNC and, and this, like the, the protests against this, like staggering, monument to slaver, slavery, silent Sam, Sam, excuse me, silent Sam, the university defended this. And beyond that, like doubled down and said that the defenders of that monument um, to oppression are, you know, equally valid voices. In fact, maybe more valid because you point out that like the moment um, there were, you know, protests against these sorts of things, you know, the university would call in the cops, right. It, you know, to, to, to quash this kind of dissent. Right. Um, so it's it's clearly the case that some kinds of diversity are included, and and the moments where any sort of radical uh, uh, form of like opposition happens, the university is still invested in suppressing that specific sort of sentiment. Um, and and so I mean, like this is why I thought you know uh, the discussion you had on the um, the podcast that I mentioned, Black Matter, um, was so interesting because you talk about. Um, how, like, as you say, even in the dominant leftist Western mode of analysis, there's no room to consider the criminal class mm. as a radical class of people. Right. Um, you say Marx himself writes off the criminal class as a weight on the working class. I didn't know this about Marx, right? That, um, you know, he was so condemning of, of the criminal. But like, this is, this is what I think, you know, is so revelatory about your work too, is that you're taking these historical figures that have achieved this level of almost transhistorical influence and kind of rehistoricizing them by saying that uh, uh, people of color are already included because uh, we are what made Western knowledge constructs possible to begin with. Right. Um, and in many ways, this is sort of like the the thesis of uh, on black media philosophy. Yeah. Like this, I you know this idea that, as you say on page thirty six of that book, the tribal slash Negro, this construct was a medium central to building Western race, gendered self-imaginations. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just, I, I kind of wondered if you could expand on that in relationship to the particular, like still celebrity status of Marshall McLuhan <laughs> within um, the Canadian uh, university system in particular. Yeah. Like what was it about McLuhan um, that made you, you know, curious to know more about where he was coming from? Because, you know, when I read McLuhan, to be honest, I've, I've not gotten a lot out of it, but you get so much out of McLuhan from just like trying to think of him in his own his historical situatedness, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I guess I could say broadly, um, my interest in Marshall McLuhan um, developed from one of my mentors, um, Sarah Sharma at the University of Toronto. Um, and one of the things that, that really kind of um, inspired me, I guess, about her approach was to think about what does um, what is what is kind of left unsaid by McLuhan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a lot in his work that I think you know um, opens up some very important ways for us to think about you know media and communication. Um, you know, as someone who is um, raised and trained in the U.S., right? The kind of positions of, of McLuhan in terms of media studies were, were very kind of eye-opening for me um, because a lot of the work that's coming out of the U.S. is actually central or like very important to what McLuhan is critiquing, right? Mm-hmm. Just to say this kind of uh, media representation um, logic, um, and so for me to think, well, what else is there outside of representation really created a massive shift um, in my thought. Um, but then when I started to read further, right, and then I started to look into McLuhan's archives um, and look into, you know, his influences, um, then I started to say, well, you know, like McLuhan is at every once in a while talking about Black people, um, but not in any kind of detailed way. But he is pulling from people that are actually very explicitly talking about about Black people um, in very kind of, you know, traditional colonialist um, understandings um, of what Black people are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that became something that I viewed as this kind of missing analysis of McLuhan's work, right? Um, in the book, you know, I talk about J.C. Carruthers, right, um, who, you know, did a lot of work um, around Black people in Kenya um, and also Black people in the United States. Um, so, you know, this becomes, you know, a very colonialist, British colonialist in particular, um, understanding of Black people. Um, and, and that then is, you know, picked up right, lifted up from by McLuhan into different context. So McLuhan is important for me because I think he does interesting work, but I think he's also important because he's he does what I try not to do, right, which is to say he pulls the logic of tribal and detribal from Carruthers um, without taking into um consideration the historical situatedness of tribal and detribal, right? Um, yeah. Of British colonial relationships in Africa. Um, mm-hmm. so, so that then becomes a, a theoretical problem, right? That I, that I view as really fluctuating throughout the entirety of McLuhan's um, logic um, because he ignores that initial foundation. Um, so I really... I really see McLuhan as, you know, a very important figure for my thought, but also as a kind of cautionary figure for my thought. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why I try to situate him, you know, in this, you know, 1960s context 
um, that he's writing from, right? You know, like, um, you know, I think it's just very interesting, right? That McLuhan at his, you know, you know, the late 1960s, right? Um, He is, he is like a, a very popular figure at the start of black studies in Canada. Um, you have the Congress of Black Writers in 1968 in Montreal, um, where you have major figures like C.L.R. James and Walter Rodney, um, Stokely Carmichael, um, all coming to Montreal to talk about, you know, this larger global pan-African understanding of Blackness, right, um, that is intimately connected to the decolonial movement in Africa and Asia and also intimately connected to questions of socialism and communism throughout the world. Um, So McLuhan is talking about Black people, but he's not really talking about Black people, right? He's talking about an idea of what Black people are. Um, He's not talking about the people and their thought, right? And I really wanna wanna delve into both of those right? The construct of Black people, but also accept that Black people have radically alternative ways of thinking about themselves in the world. Um, And I think you, yeah, this is the whole thing is that um, like Kathy Weeks, for example, you are creating an archive, but you're not like indebted to that archive. It's generative in certain ways, but you're not beholden uh, to McLuhan. In the end, you know, you, you're you're punching holes rather than preserving in the sense that you're saying, like, uh, there's a couple moments where you talk about how, um, you know, for example, unlike our contemporary kind of public intellectuals, you might, you cite Noam Chomsky, Cornell West, McLuhan aspired to avoid social criticism. He wanted to try and be impartial. And right. you say, there's a moment where you say, like, he was not openly racist, but he was a cultural rel- relativist. That's the cautionary tale is that cultural relativism uh, that is so, so kind of conveniently reductive in certain ways. Right. Um, and I guess like the the thing that you're doing, and yet at the same time, as I say, like uh, you say he's important for pointing scholars toward considering media as epistemological, mm-hmm. like focusing on how it produces knowledge. Um, uh, but the thing that you say that I, I think is really interesting and, and as a way of kind of segueing into your reading of, of Darwin um, is that you say McLuhan was also profoundly influenced by social Darwinian thought that presumed this kind of trajectory and posited the black other almost as a foil or as a medium. Right. Um, and like, there's this idea that his research relied on this, this kind of, um, in, in some ways you say a misreading of Darwin mm-hmm. uh, that sees, you know, uh, sees social that uses social Darwinism almost in a neoliberal sense to justify um, unequal like development. And, and you say like, like it, the, the chapter on Darwin starts with this uh, uh, admission by Darwin that he had been intimate with a black person. Right. Um, and you say like, this is such an incredible turn of phrase. You, you say we should not confuse intimacy with abolition. Um, there's so much in those, uh, in those like seven words, uh, in some ways. And I wondered if you could like explain further what you mean by sort of like, or, or, or what you're doing in terms of using this exchange and this admission of the exchange by Darwin to, as you put it, re-examine Darwin's own abolitionist position as like deeply unfinished and, and maybe even sort of 
in some ways in bad faith because he is at the same time reproducing a sort of white colonial possessiveness uh, in the ways in which he yeah, talks about black, black people, black bodies. Yeah. You know, um, you know, this chapter in particular um, comes from me reading a lot of Darwin. Um, and then I started to say, well, you know, like, you know, the, the kind of dominant reading of Darwin, right. Is that, you know, um, he was against slavery. He was um, mm. a, from a, a wealthy um, liberal family. Um, his grandfather was was really central to um, a lot of the anti-slavery uh, movement um, as well. So I wanted to say, you know, the the question of his his um, his feelings on slavery really are are um, irrelevant to the larger context that he lives in, um, in which, you know, black people can be used as objects. Right. Um, and in my framing of that, right. I, I see a lot of connections to McLuhan's, um, media. Right. Um, and so, so, so that becomes the kind of jumping off point to show that, um, sorry, Darwin, has a lot more connection to the social Darwinists that come after him, mm-hmm. um, in the sense that you know the the kind of lot the general logic right is that Darwin and the social Darwinists are are these two distinct lines, um, and the social Darwinists are just messing up Darwin and his you know objective theory, um, and I want to break that logic right. I want to illustrate how Darwin himself. Um, starts to build a very common, um, what I would say, you know, um, 19th century grounding of a media theory, right, of a media philosophy um, that people like McLuhan will take and and mature um, by the time they get to the 20th century. Um, So so that leads me into thinking about, well, who is McLuhan citing, right? Who is McLuhan... um, showing favoritism to in his own work, right? Um, who's McLuhan writing letters to, right? McLuhan is, of course, writing letters to J.C. Carruthers um, to, you know, talk about how influential his work is um, to McLuhan's media theory. Mm-hmm. So you have then, you know, inside of that, you know, connection between Darwin, but also the social Darwinist, um, a developmental logic um, and, you know, Darwin himself is a little um, bit better in his own theory in terms of this developmental logic, right? Um, he doesn't make it a kind of neat theorization, um, but he does still view, you know, the Black person as open to um, his sexual desires, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which means he's not too dissimilar from the social Darwinists who come after him. And even during his time, um, so McLuhan is going to build off of that, and then basically make a kind of, um, especially in books like um, Understanding Media, but also the Gutenberg Galaxy. He's going to um, make this kind of developmental logic inside of his media theory of moving from tribal to detribal to retribal. Mm-hmm. He's going to add retribal onto J.C. Carruthers' um, framework, um, and even though the retribal is viewed as this kind of return to tribalism, 
it is still a kind of linear developmental logic, right? Um, you have to go through these three stages before you can be basically developed enough to even return to the tribal. Yeah, yeah. So that becomes, you know, really, I think, a, a, a strong framing of that first chapter um, in how I connect McLuhan's work to this kind of social Darwinian logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, interestingly, a, a kind of a movement toward mastery, um, but not necessarily like technological mastery. It's like a movement toward mastery as naturalness, where you've kind of like, in my reading, integrated to- technology in a way that's somehow more organic, but kind of on the backs of the racialized other. Right. Um, I kind of wanted to switch switch gears and talk about the ways in which uh, your book um, on Black media philosophy thinks through uh, the Anthropocene, the climate crisis, and kind of broadens the scope of reparations. Yeah. Um, you know, you're saying in that book that uh, there's there's something missing in terms of the kind of financial way that we think about climate reparation, reparations, and that we kind of in some ways need to like radicalize our thinking around climate reparations. It's and it, it's again like you're citing these these facts around obviously you know uh, the the West the, the developed global North disproportionately being responsible for climate change. You don't deny that. Um, but you you sort of suggest that, um, you know, the point of reparations cannot just be uh, these meager kind of gestures uh, that we need to grasp at the roots in order to uh, uh, kind of embrace reparations as a as an emancipatory project. Right. Um, and and so I guess, like, I wondered if you could just like um, help me understand what it means to suggest that, um, you know, uh, a kind of black cosmology when it comes to the climate crisis might be more broadly a source of like just going in a different direction away from the kind of, you know, uh, death machine of neoliberal global capitalism and this like over extraction that we seem so addicted to. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, going back, like, you know, even to that first chapter, right. One of the things I'm trying to do um, is in this distinction between you know, the Negro as this construct um, of people like McLuhan or of the social Darwinist um, is to illustrate, well, what is assumed in their understanding of the Negro, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And disproportionately, you could say that there's um, multiple things that are assumed, um, but one is Africa, and then the other is a very particular understanding of Africa, right? Which is to say, um, as this um, natural space from which, you know, objects are extracted um, and turned into um, commodities, right? Um, through the mm-hmm. process of labor. Um, so, so when you think about that, you can also see the trajectory of the history of racial slavery in that logic as well. Um, the movement of um, people of African descent throughout the world um, through slavery um, is a central project of turning them into the Negro, just as colonialism would be a central project to turning them into the Negro. Um, So assumed inside of this construct of the Negro is the idea that certain people are just 
a little bit closer to nature than um, we are, right? Um, we mm-hmm. being the universal we. Um, so you can see this logic, I think, beyond Black people, right? You can see this logic in Algeria. Um, you can see this logic um, in Central and South America as well. Um, you can see this logic uh, throughout um, South Asia as well. The idea being that um, a certain group of people, disproportionately people of color, um, are just a little bit closer to nature than Western Europe and North America is. Um, so in that, in those terms, right, we have to also think about the extraction of um, resources that is a part of the destruction of our current climate. Um, and you see a commonality between people that have been colonized, people that have been enslaved, and the extraction of natural resources, um, in my logic. Um, mm-hmm. So in order to get to a discussion of reparations, um, we have to think about this beyond just people in a particular geographic or maybe even more specifically within a particular nationalistic framework um, and think about it in this larger global project um, in which, you know, the destruction of the natural environment has also meant the destruction of various different types of people. Um, So reparations then has to be for everyone, right? It has to be for, Mm. because, you know, at some point, you're not going to have anywhere to live, right? Like, yeah, we're just going to run out of water. It's just yeah. that simple, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, so if we really are to seriously think about reparations, I think it has to go beyond a financial um, delivery of a check to a very specific yeah. group of people in a very specific national context um, and mm-hmm. into thinking about what happens when the water recedes, what happens when it floods, right? What happens when you know, um, our glaciers melt, where are people going to go, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Reparations then I think would have to take into consideration um, both the climate, but also the people that are disproportionately impacted by the transformation of the climate. Yeah. And I mean, you speak so eloquently in the book about this, like you, you say that like the language of reparations is something that gives gives us the ability to think through this uh to begin with like the uh, a restructuring that is potentially emancipatory um and that is life-saving i mean the the numbers of lives that are lost from just air pollution alone it, it, it every year is staggering but what you're saying is that uh to quote the book to call it reparations may not do it full justice because the discourse of reparations has a long and politically charged history and you say like the more radical reparations discourses have never reduced reparations to black people in the United States only, but point to rethinking racial reparations via land redistribution, free college tuition, the abolition of policing prisons and war, and the end of tax exempt statuses to name a few options. So like you're saying like, not only is the, the logic of just cutting a check um, incredibly unhelpfully reductive, there are also already existent uh, uh, you know, more effective solutions that could be transformative. Right. And like that to me is, is so you're, you're theorizing it, but you're also historically situating it and providing these practical um, alternatives. And this is, I guess, where I wanted to take things next is that, you know, you're talking about the black Anthropocene as something that can quote, point toward new conceptions of humanness and freedom. 
um, this idea that a more radical form of rep- reparations, um, you know, could end up saving us all. Yeah. And so, you know, like, it, but it's, it's difficult when you, again, have to try and deal with the uh, practical question of something like, you know, environmental racism and anti-racist forms of harm reduction. And I wondered, like, just in terms of speaking from a communications perspective and working in a communications department, do you have any, like, you know, a gut instinct or an insight around how you communicate these sorts of realities to a, a kind of mainstream audience? I mean, this book is accessible, but just trying to convey the reality that your zip code, your postal code can determine the disproportionate exposure of, of your community to death yeah. is not an easy thing to convert into like a health campaign, for example. Um, so where do you see, I mean, obviously you've identified like the Black Panthers and Huey Newton as these sorts of public intellectuals. Do you take a lot of inspiration from that specific radical tradition as a site of almost like innovating within, you know, communicating these ideas to the broader public? Yeah, you know, I I definitely do, you know, and I, um, one of the things I try to do in that, that chapter on Newton is to situate the Panthers in the um, development of, of black studies. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the, the thing that I find influential about people like the Panthers um, are things that I don't think work today. I Mm. think that, you know, the, the context that the Panthers existed in, right. Was a context of, early to mid 20th century um, radicalism, right? Where, you know, um, there was always the feeling that the the radicals were going to win. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I I try to talk to about my, to to my students about um, in thinking about something like the history of the Russian revolution was how long they were revolting (laughs) right before Mm-hmm. You know, the 1917 revolution. And it wasn't just Lenin and the Bolsheviks, right? You had the peasantry. Um, you had so many different groups and everybody was into radicalism at that moment. Um, and, and, and that's just in Russia, right? Um, so, you know, the, the Panthers exist in a context like that, right? Where, you know, you have various different black radical groups in the US, but you also have various different decolonial movements throughout Asia and Africa. Um, You have various different socialist politics and movements throughout the world. Um, You have, you know, so many different um, people that are all thinking in a very uh, particular radical um, context and that context, I don't believe exists in the same way as we have it today. This, this is, I, I pull, you know, this directly from Gramsci, right, is the mechanics of um, revolutionary thought and revolutionary practice are constantly transforming, right? You know, it's not mm-hmm. uh, a guarantee um, that, you know, the things that worked, you know, in the Russian revolution will work today. I think, you know, to think about it today, what would it look like? What is happening in our societies, right? Who are the people that are being affected? You know, I'm actually, uh, I've been reading up a lot on David Duke, 
lately. Um, who's a um, KKK leader? A leader, right? Who yeah. ran for um, office um, in Louisiana in the 1970s and 1980s, I believe. Um, and one of the things, you know, that he does, you know, is he is able to effectively take the logic of the left and appropriate it for the right. So he called himself the white Malcolm X, right? He said that he took the logic of the civil rights and he's now turning it into white people's rights, right? As the the, the new organizing frame. Um, so I'm not even I'm not even sure that that logic works today because I think that has been effectively taken over by the right. Um, but I do think that you know if we are to to talk about you know some type of leftist politics, um, I always feel like the the creation and the development of some type of solidarity is the best place to start. I think that you know to counter the, you know, appropriation of the, you know, the civil rights logic by, you know, white supremacists, um, we have to do a good job of breaking down the way that they are trying to fracture solidarity, right? Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that David Duke does, for example, is he will say, you know, well, you just got fired from your job, um, it's because the immigrants or it's because the black people. Um, and it's like, well, why isn't it because of the, the person who gave you the job, right? Why is it not because mm -hmm. of the person who fired you, right? Um, there, are, there are easier enemies to find than black people, right? Um, you're you're yeah, yeah. creating something. Um, so, so I try to at least talk about that and think about that in a serious way. Um, but even that is, is difficult to do. I, I, I admit. I mean, yeah, again, this is why your work is so restless. It's wrestling with these things, trying to gauge the structure itself, um, is, is such a part of the challenge. I mean, um, it is, it is the case that when, you know, these, these, um, you know, social justice strategies themselves get co-opted when, you know, uh, when Martin Luther King becomes uh, repurposed for the right to reinforce sort of neoliberal ideology, right. um, a lot is lost in that specific act of kind of historical amnesia. But there's a lot of danger too, you know, just thinking about our current context in, you know, how you talk about decentralized media, or you, you call it like transparent media, sort of, you know, data itself, alg algorithmic media as the sort of, um, world that we're inhabiting now a world that we don't fully understand yeah and like you know you say in in your book if if man if humankind is too racist too sexist too homophobic or too transphobic to be fully trusted we are promised that we should trust his transparent media at our borders airports and especially on our mobile devices and social media accounts with our consensual agreement to be surveilled um so like that's the fishbowl that we're now in and it's a very dangerous uh, place, especially for uh, black and brown folks. Um, so your question about like what is happening and who is affected really boils that down in a way that is helpfully clear. There is in Newton's thought, in, in Huey Newton's thought, the sense of, of you know, uh, there is a media philosophy in the way that he understands 
the pursuit of profit as something that exceeds national boundaries. Right. And so, you know, when you talk, for example, about Amazon um, in the book, you know, this commodification of knowledge, the the providing of this sort of, um, you know, ab- ability to warehouse information, um, it made me think of Maura Weigel's work on how like the Amazon bookstore has become the sort of like, um, you know, bastion of white supremacist sentiment. Yeah. I mean, like it, it is the case that you can go on Amazon's ebook store and like buy any number of novels that imagine this kind of utopian white ethno state. And it could, Amazon could easily, uh, you know, uh, uh, adjudicate that better. It could, it could filter that out, but it chooses not to, Right. you know, that's not the algorithm. (laughs) That's Bezos making money. Yeah. Uh, And so, yeah, I mean, um, I wanted to, I guess, ask you in this context about the intersection of, you know, uh, the the digital sphere and the actual sphere, because this is something that you're trying to kind of understand in relationship to Mike Brown's death in particular, you know, and and yeah, I I kind of wanted to segue into the ways that you think through um, that event, which was in some ways the spark for, you know, Black Lives Matter becoming a mainstream social movement. Um, You say in that piece, that in a lot of ways, um, you know, Brown's death was uh, a highly mediated event. Could you explain like what it was about these like digital renderings in particular that you saw as extremely fraught and sort of like reflective of a certain white supremacist logic with regard to policing? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I think, you know, part of what I'm trying to do in that that chapter that I think you really, really captured is um, looking at the the transformation of the digital um, mm-hmm. that and how that has transformed um, both activism, um, but also um, various different forms of racist responses um, to activism. Um, so one of the things that, that really sticks out to me about the digital renderings, you can Google the words Mike Brown on um, YouTube, and you can find some of these digital renderings, although they are constantly uploaded and, and taken down depending on the time. Um, but one of the things that, that I found really interesting about the digital renderings was that one, they they don't have any, um, they're, they're not eyewitness accounts, right? They are, Right. Um, accounts that are disproportionately pulled from police reports, um, local news reports, um, and um, different types of renderings and framings of, of the event. Um, and also from um, Michael Brown's own social media um, presence. Um, so, so there's no um, actual video footage in a lot of these renderings. Um, and with that, there's also the assumption that they are somehow um, transparent, right? That they provide yeah. you with a neutral, unbiased depiction um, of what actually happened to Michael Brown. Um, there's one, um, and some of these are actually um, made by um, uh, digital forensics um, people, and they're, a lot of them are trying to use these um, to put them into court cases, although they're disproportionately always prevented from being put into court cases. Um, but as like evidence that, you know, this is what actually happened to um, somebody. 
So um, I, I see that within our current context, right? Our current digital media context, um, what I'm calling a, a digital media economy, um, building off of the work of people like Lisa Gittleman, um, is the the argument that you know the that that humans are disproportionately being removed. And when I say humans, I mean human biases are disproportionately being removed from our digital um, technologies. Um, so you can see this argument in people like Sophia Noble, and people like Ruha Benjamin, Simone Brown. Um, the idea that somehow the digital is doesn't have humans involved, right? Um, and doesn't have human biases involved in it. Um, so, so that becomes a way of framing Michael Brown is, you know, this is really what happened. This is really what he, he did. And essentially he caused his own death, um, becomes the, the overwhelming logic of that. Um, so I'm, so I'm really thinking like, you know, despite the idea that the human biases are removed, um, isn't it interesting that the same racist thing occurs, right? That mm-hmm. you know, the the black person just caused their own death. They're they're too violent. They're hyper violent. They can't control themselves. Um, the same racist logics are being um, reopened under the digital media economy um, as they were prior to that economy. So that really, you know, I think you know you can you can find. I think similar logics and people like Kara Killing's work or Lisa Nakamura, um, but that the 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 framing of Michael Brown becomes my way of of trying to illustrate that um, in our current context. Um, so I so I try to connect that um, not just to um, the digital animations, but also to the corporations um, that are doing them. Right, these digital forensics groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and who are they being paid by, right? Who are they um, in league with? Yeah, I mean, it's like it's a form of sort of cultural materialism without naming itself as such. Like that seems to be the way that you're um, interrogating this this stuff. And I think it, it makes such a huge impact for you to actually include these images. Yeah. Um, you know, like these, in some t- cases, like really cartoonish images, right. sometimes pretty crude digital renderings. Um, yeah, like... You, you say in the book that, you know, quote, Brown's digital killing is similar to the long history of mediations of racial violence via photography, you know, lynching postcards uh, or television. Um, you know, you think of copaganda and things like live PD and cops, right. uh, which have been historically PR vehicles for the police, um, where, you know, these, these, these companies are acquiescing to police demands for them to like suppress footage of police brutality and so on. Um, you know, there's you say a form of extraction happening in this case where uh, in, in the form of these digital renderings where the buying and selling of Brown's ancestors profited someone, but so too are these videos on YouTube um, profiting someone, right? Like there's, there's a media economy that is um, not just, you know, uh, um, catering to a desire for a kind of knowable, visible spectacle of black death, but also confirming a white framing of Brown's demonic like ontology. Right. Right. And like the thing, the other thing I found really remarkable, you have this, um, you have this essay uh, that is about sort of uh, space as a medium Mm -hmm. uh, that I wanted to talk about a little bit. 
Um, this piece is so interesting in terms of like, again, thinking through McLuhan in a lot of ways. Like you say that McLuhan notes that roads are an important medium of communication prior to the telegraph. And you quote McLuhan on this. Right. Um, and uh, you talk about how like streets are full of meaning, that they're media in ways that hold racial implications. Right. Um, so I like to, that to begin with potentiates so much in terms of like just trying to think about the street uh, as part of the built environment, something that is written, created, modified, like infrastructure is something that has a specific history and in many case of very, cases a very violent history. Yeah. But you're, what you're doing is trying to historicize the racial history of these seemingly inexorable or even like natural human infrastructures and say that in truth, they're structured around the capacity to own a vehicle um, and that like the, the layout of freeways, for example, is itself like a racially stratified, almost environmentally racist uh, policy, right? Yeah. Um, could you maybe like just uh, uh, give us a sense of what you're doing in this essay that I, for some reason, have forgotten the title of? Um, <laughs> yeah. Where, yeah, like the, the idea of streets as a medium and, and where you see where where you see that line of, of analysis kind of heading. You know, you can kind of look in various different places and see the importance of of roads and streets um, in terms of and their relationship to race, you know, like um, throughout the U.S., you know, the the development of the freeway system disproportionately cut through um, black neighborhoods. Right. Um, you also see the same thing in Montreal. Right. The cutting of mm -hmm. um, what what um, was called a uh, little burgundy. Right. Like um, the cutting of these black disproportionately black neighborhoods um, is oftentimes made um, through the development of freeways. Um, so those are decisions, right? Those are very particular um, policies um, written up. Um, and sometimes those policies, you know, you look in places like Los Angeles, um, those policies are actually not even the most efficient, um, but they're designed to keep intact the white neighborhoods um, at the expense mm -hmm. of the black and brown neighborhoods. Um, so there's a lot of meaning in that, right? These streets aren't random. They aren't, you know, um, without thought or without, you know, history. They are completely organized by a particular history um, that's oftentimes very racist in its organizing. Um, so, so when I talk about, you know, the development of, you know, streets as a medium, right? You know, I, I pulling from McLuhan, um, I'm again also kind of pointing back to McLuhan's at times inability to think about questions of race inside of his logic. Um, so that for me becomes the way that I, that I really thought about, you know, writing about the streets, right? Um, as this kind mm -hmm. of organizing racialized process that we oftentimes don't, don't think about um, in a lot of the media philosophy work that I read. Yeah, that's that's the whole thing is that, you know, there's something to me really uh, original about saying like, um, you know, in the context of communication studies that, quote, a disproportionate amount of construction for these freeways went out of their way to cut through and destroy inner city uh, communities. Like you might get that in sort of radical geography or something, um, this specific study of gentrification. The white control of mobility is this concept that you talk about in terms of like, 
what Kara Daggett might call uh, petro-masculinity as well. You say yeah. it, it's it's the white cisgendered middle-class man that is the kind of central population that can traverse space without racial violence. And then at the same time, white people engage in violently aggressive controls of black automobile movement on city streets. Right. Um, so again, like bringing those into conversation with the you know question of mediation is um, is crucial. And I guess like, you know, I, the the last thing that I kind of wanted to address is this like really, um, you know, rich reading of the Underground Railroad um, itself as a, as a sort of like site of of mediation or almost like the uh, a site of like creating ciphers and a language um, for uh, uh, fugitivity for for escape. You're talking in in that section of the book about how, uh, as you put it, the Underground Railroad success, again, reading space as, as a medium, relied on its improvisational nature. You say that it functioned as this like media economy, uh, specifically in the sense that, quote, it could not be reduced to one medium alone, but a complex interweaving of mediations that produced both Black liberation and sometimes man's self-image. Yeah. To think about, um, you know, the idea that the Underground Railroad is is a set of messages and messages and signs. Um, you know, it's not just sort of poetic in a way. It does allow you to sort of theorize this historical moment of of resistance, of organized resistance. Sort of think it otherwise. Yeah. Um, and and I want to get to this this insight that you give around sort of like the attempt to re-narrate that history in a ways that in ways that sometimes champion like white saviors, basically white abolitionists. But before that, I guess. I wondered if, because you don't talk about this uh, in the book, I wondered if you could um, both kind of, you know, uh, unpack that idea that, you know, there were media that were used by slaves to subtly evade slave catchers. But also, I guess, like, whether you could relate your specific discussion in the, in the book of water to, like, Colson Whitehead, Whitehead's book, The Underground Railroad, mm. and Barry Jenkins' series, his, his adaptation. Yeah. Um, you call Water a consistent friend of the runaway. And, like, in that, in that series, in the book, there are these moments where Water is, like, this site of, of like, transcendence. Yeah, you know, um, you know one of the, the things that I talk about in that chapter um, is... You know, and, and I guess this is really the framing of the book is, you know, the idea of what black people are um, under a white supremacist framework or understanding of black people, um, black people as a construct. Um, I also say the Negro as a construct um, versus what black people actually are and what black people actually do. Right. Um, these are two different framings. Um, so one of the things that I talk about um, is the way in which, you know, Black people risk their lives um, and oftentimes, you know, we're more comfortable dying, right, drowning um, than going back into slavery. Um, and, you know, this is a, a consistent um, thing that we see throughout, you know, um, the history of, of racial slavery in the Americas, whether it's in, you know, the United States or it's in uh, Canada or it's in the Caribbean, um, is that, you know, a disproportionate um, desire um, to be free um, rather than 
um, go or, or rather uh, to to die uh, rather than to go back into enslavement. Um, so on the one hand, then you have a what I would say a kind of um, white supremacist view of that death as a kind of inferiority or a submissiveness or a irrationality, right? Um, you know, the mm-hmm. kind of, um, one of the things I talk about is the disease that um, was fabricated by uh, Samuel Cartwright um, called drapetomania. Um, the idea that, you know, um, black people running from um, slavery was a disease um, and that, you know, them wandering was like this kind of thing that, that said that something was wrong with black people. Um, slavery for him wasn't the problem. It was the fact that they were running. That was the problem. Um, so there's an irrationality associated with black people even deciding to leave enslavement. And if they right. die on the way, then that's just proof of that irrationality. Um, so I talk about that in relationship to the ways in which um, enslaved people actually thought about um, their escape. And they, they, they counter that argument with, well, at least if I die, I'll go to heaven, right? Um, I, will be, I will transcend this earthly world um, and go into something that's larger than all of us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so even in their understanding of their flight from enslavement, if they got away and they survived, that was great. But if they didn't, that was also better than going back. Um, and water was was one of the consistent, as I say, friends of um, black people at that time because um, one, it was difficult for um, people to traverse um, to capture um, people uh, who were fleeing from slavery, but also um, it could be an easy way to die. Right? Um, there's, you know, um, very important literature that we have, um, both novels and actual events um, about uh, instances like that. Um, so for me, then I I'm talking about water as this medium, right? Um, as a, a, a way of getting outside of slavery, whether that is outside via death or through escaping the people that were chasing you. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, like just that specific kind of connection to the natural world is so heartbreaking, the, the way that you write about it. And you, you say kind of explicitly, like, um, you're not necessarily, um, you know, making the claim that this form of transcendence is just like uh, uh, irreducibly about belief in God, that it's more about that belief in freedom, in yeah. transcendence. Right. Um, you know, and, and the pursuit of that. Um, and, and I mean, like, this is, this is so, like I say, it's so heartbreaking in the book, obviously, like that's, that itself is, is almost a trivializing of, of what you're describing. Um, but there's also so much beauty in the ways that you write about, you know, the the intersection of print and natural phenomena. Like, for example, the North Star, the fact yeah. that, you know, Frederick Douglass went so far as to name the newspaper he founded in 1847, the North Star, because of the way that the North Star, you know, had this 
um, figural place as a as a as like a guiding compass of of seeking freedom. Um, you know, just and you know the the last thing I guess I want to ask because you know like I'm aware of the fact that as a communicator myself who is invested in these ideas in in you know forms of uh, um, you know, tr- social transformation, trying to believe in sort of radical equality, whatever that might mean, a kind of, you know, uh, attempt to, uh, you know, actually engage with these historical violences and the persistence of them in the present that, you know, I have the, in some ways, the luxury as an academic of, of positioning myself as sort of like, having mastered these anti-racist discourses, right? This is something that Eve Tuck and Kei Wayne Yang talk about as this like gesture of mastery within the academy among white academics as itself like an innocence move. Um, And and yeah, I mean, like, you know, Charmaine Nelson, for example, at NASCAD has written about the positioning of white abolitionists as as saviors right she's she's written about you know this documentary series enslaved that tends to downplay slavery in canada and certainly in canada we like to imagine ourselves as being uh um you know not rooted in that that sort of history of racial violence right um you know is it is it like do you feel like it's important for not just like academics but people in general to um you know acknowledge the fact that the centering of these sorts of white saviors, the deification of people that have a specific access to, you know, that exoneration basically uh, in the form of like being, being close to these, these liberation struggles that like there's, there's a real politics in some ways to championing those specific figures rather than the people like Harriet Tubman, who were obviously instrumental in providing people with freedom. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could, could, you know, kind of expand on this idea that, as you say in the book, white benevolence was shown to be largely fictional. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, um, one of the things that I, I guess I, I try to, uh, get to in the book is, you know, the, to think about what is the context in which, um, and particularly that second chapter on the underground railroad, um, what is the context in which the white abolitionists existed in? Um, and, you know, I think, you know, also connecting it back to Darwin, we can say that that context uh, still disproportionately existed uh, in a way that situated black people as secondary, right? As less than, is not quite human. Um, so, the politics aside, right, whether you agreed in racial slavery or not, um, became irrelevant for the larger argument about what the what to do with the Negro, right? The Negro problem, as it was called. Um, so, so, you know, it's not to say that, you know, politics don't matter, right? Politics, of course, do matter, right? To be an abolitionist is definitely better than not being an abolitionist, right? Um, But it is to say that we need to be very careful and and clear about the context in which those politics exist. Um, I think that today um, we largely exist in a context where things that were once radical are now profitable. 
And anytime there are things that are profitable, um, I think you will all, often find um, people of, of various different races um, that are definitely open to po positioning themselves as making uh, that profit um, as efficiently as they possibly can. For me, I'm, I'm very interested and in, in invested in politics, um, but I'm also very interested and invested in what happens when you um, state your politics. Um, who, you know, I have a, a very uh, a, a good friend who always says to me when we're talking about, um, let's just say people we don't like, <laughs> he always says, what's your hustle, right? <laughs> What's your angle? Sure. Right. Um, and what he means by that is, you know, what's your agenda? What's your agenda? Right. Like, mm -hmm. is your agenda um, to um, be celebrated and to be, you know, um, viewed as a quote unquote radical figure um, so that you can make a lot of money? Um, or is your agenda liberation? Right. Um, and for me, if your agenda is liberation, then we're, we're, we're speaking the same language. Um, mm. And, you know, I think that, you know, if your agenda is uh, making a lot of money or at least a decent amount of money um, by appropriating the language of radicalism, then that's to me where, where we part ways. Well, uh, I can tell you this, that the only um, uh, the only wealth I'm getting from producing this podcast is the occasional free book, which, I mean, it's really a kind of great reward, to be honest. I no, I, I love free books. It's very gratifying to, to get them and to then have the opportunity to promote them. I mean, this is a, a book that I certainly hope is read widely. I think it's like brimming with insights. And and to, to your point, I mean, the, the point you, that you just made about the sort of you know, kind of co-optation, the opportunism around radical thought, the ways in which, yeah, like things that were once radical seem to now be profitable. Um, you say in um, the article I mentioned before, um, you know, the uh, plantation politics uh, and campus rebellions essay on inclusion that, you know, if a diversity and inclusion policy that welcomes non-dominant people is possible, and you say in brackets, and I do not think it currently is, then it must be based on the discomfort of some people. Um, you know, that's that's an epigraph for a, a, another piece to come. I think like <laughs> we we need to like dwell with that. What what that means? Um, you know, because there's certainly yeah, there's certainly a lot to be said for um, denying the privilege of of a sort of fashionable radicalism to people that have already historically benefited from um, appropriating knowledge. I think. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, I really appreciate you talking to me. This was a lot of fun. Great. Thank you, Scott.